You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, thanks for joining us for another Land and Legacy podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dye, and we have got a special live recording for you guys this week here on the Land and Legacy podcast. We are in Ohio this weekend doing a QDMA workshop with Twin Creek um, QDMA branch. And with me to my left, I've got Mike and Clint from the Ohio State Deer Program. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good, thank you. Good deal, guys. Tell me a little bit about yourself real quick um, and kind of the positions that you guys hold in managing deer for the state of Ohio. Uh, hi, this is Mike Tonkovich. Uh, I am the uh, deer program administrator for the Division of Wildlife. I've been doing that. Uh, I'm in my 25th year now. Um, and uh, to my left is, is our deer biologist. I'll let you, I'll let Clint tell us a little bit about himself, maybe his background. Uh, yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, Clint McCoy. I am the deer biologist with the Division of Wildlife here in Ohio. And I've uh, been here for about five years now. I uh, enjoyed pretty much every minute of it. Learned a lot from, from my fellow to the right here, Mike, who's, who's been at this job for, for far longer than I have and, and it's a wealth of experience. Um, my background, uh, went to grad school, um, did uh, deer research for, for eight or nine years, and, and this is a first job uh, out, of, out of college, so. Man, just stepped right up to the plate here in Ohio. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> good for you, good for you. Well, we are um, here at the workshop. We've got about 100 people here in attendance today, and they've asked and fielded some questions throughout the day that we're going to answer here on the podcast and address those questions. So the first one is, what is the state doing in its wildlife management areas to manage those grounds, the public land in the state of Ohio for deer? You guys know off the top of your hand, you know, just some general things that you know, this kind of, this occurs throughout the state on public land. Well, uh, there's two, kind of two general areas in Ohio. Uh, I guess we should start off by, you know, western half of Ohio, a lot of our public areas are, are grassland dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, eastern Ohio is, is more hilly and forested. Uh, so there's kind of two different uh, habitat focus, um, management focuses in, in those areas. So maintaining grasslands in the western portion of the state uh, certainly Anything we do to to maintain those grasslands is some of the some of the better deer habitat when sure. when you're talking about uh, bedding areas and uh, and and just the forage that can grow in those 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 natural uh, grassland areas. 
on the eastern side of the state, uh, active timber harvest is is something we're trying to do more of. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it, there's two two kind of uh, thoughts as a, from a hunter's perspective when they see uh, trees being cut down. From a biologist's perspective and from a deer's perspective, uh, that's the best thing you can do totally. in, in the forest. You know, it, when you have all that that growth coming back after the harvest. So. Uh, um, Good timed and and well placed timber harvests. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, uh, in Ohio, our forests have aged over the course of time. Uh, much of Ohio was was farmed back in in you know starting in the se- uh, I guess 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. All those old farms were reverting into forest. Um, by now, those forests are are heavily mature, mm-hmm. uh, shading out all that understory, so there's not a whole lot left uh, undergrowth. So. One of the things that we're trying to do is initiate more more um, more timber harvest, re- reset that succession to, to provide more uh, more habitat, more better habitat for for deer and other wildlife species. And that's important. You said other wildlife species. I follow along quite a bit in Ohio. We've got quite a client base in southeast Ohio, and I saw on some public ground they're going in through the rough grouse society yes. and doing a lot of these temporary forest openings and managing the timber in that respect. Okay, that's you know great from the uh, grouse perspective, but hey, as deer hunters, that helps yeah. us too, right? And so and that's and that's a very good point. It is is there's nothing I, I would say there's probably nothing that our agency does specifically just for deer on sure. our wildlife areas. You know, grouse are a perfect example of of habitat that's geared towards that species that needs that young forest that deer are are ultimately benefiting from. No uh, doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Um, one of the other questions that came up today was, what is the total population of deer in the state of Ohio? So let's let Clint catch his, br- <laughs> let's let Kent ca- catch his breath here, and I'll, and I'll tackle that one. One of the first things that I did uh, when I started uh, with the agency back in 1995 was pester my boss about why we're doing a statewide deer population estimate each fall because of the difficulties as you might imagine, Matt, in, in, in estimating uh, deer numbers. Um, we spent hours, in, in fact, Clint can attest to this days trying to get estimates for uh, parts of counties. Um, so, so to come up with a deer population estimate for the entire state, um, it, needless to say, is, is very difficult. And, and, and quite honestly, for except for academic purposes, uh, there really is no reason to uh, uh, to know how many deer there are in the state. So, so seven or seven or eight years into my career, we actually stopped doing a statewide deer population estimate simply because. We spoke earlier during the during the program today about bag limits and, and it being a lightning rod, you know, and folks mm-hmm. arguing and being concerned about bag limits and being distracted by bag limits. But population size is probably may even been a, a bigger issue because uh, folks would, um, you know, they, they wanted a, a deer population estimate for the entire state. And we don't I mean, I think the thing that need folks need to know is we don't manage a statewide deer population. We manage presently 88 counties so what mm-hmm. we need to know is what's going on in each of those 88 counties not whether uh, we have 554,000 deer or whether we have 154,000 deer um, that really is irrelevant so for management purposes um, we spoke earlier about indices we rely very heavily on yep. indices uh, bow hunter observations number of deer removed from uh, from roadways uh, the buck harvest used to be a better index to deer population size than what it is today but long story short uh, the state of Ohio even though you may find one, if you Google it, you may still find a population estimate. We do see those show up from time to time yet. Um, <laughs> several years old. Several years yeah. old. Hey, I saw that you had statewide deer population of 540,000 deer. What year did you get that from? Well, I think <laughs> I can't remember. But anyway, um, no, no statewide deer population estimate necessary. Um, number one, we manage 88 counties, 88 deer populations rather than a single one. And, and number two, just too difficult to come by. Absolutely. And with anything in the environment and ecology, when we look at it, it's a moving target and there's so many 
dynamics that play into this, and you're talking about these, um, you know, observations and things like, you can't pinpoint a number, and it's it's it would be inaccurate if you did. And again, the end result is, how does it help you? Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, what it comes down to, and and uh, Mike talked about it earlier today, was we we set a goal. People either want more or fewer, mm-hmm. and then we monitor that population for a couple of years to see if deer are you know, if the population trajectory is accomplishing that goal that was set. You know, sure. people want more deer and the popu- and all our trends are indicating populations are going up, then we're we don't need to know how many deer that is. Mm-hmm. We just we just know that we're meeting the demands of, you know, the people that we serve in the state. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the questions that came up is food plot seed mixture, um, recommendations for flooded bottomland. So if you guys don't want to tackle that one, I'll, I'll tackle it. Um, there's very few food plot crop situations that, truthfully, a lot of species can survive in with wet feet, consistent wet feet. Um, I guess my question would be, is that area best served as a food plot? Even though it's an opening, it may not be the best area to plant and put in those time and resources into planting that area and trying to designate it as a food plot. There's other situations um, where in bottomland you can have that area offering great cover. Let's say river oats or Virginia wild rye grows great, and that's great structure and cover in that area. So just because it may be open doesn't mean it has to be a food plot, and you could have a native situation that offers great cover versus food and take your food elsewhere where you know long-term the ground itself in the situation, the environment, is going to be more productive for a food plot. So there's not a great species, honestly, that's going to have continual wet feet like that to produce a great food plot stand that you're looking for. I would revert back into the native situation. Again, look elsewhere for a food plot location. Um, another question. Let's see here. What factors should you use to determine the amount and size of bedding areas? I'll throw that one to you, Clint, because you've looked mm. at and done a lot of research there um, in South Carolina. And you were looking and showed grass today um, and very visual um, examples of core areas and yeah. difference between core areas and home ranges. What did you find in that quick summary of their time spent in these core areas? Yeah, so uh, just a quick summary. Uh, those of you listening that, that weren't able to, to view the the, uh, the presentation I gave earlier today, um, we captured and collared uh, and got data from uh, 37 uh, individual bucks in, in uh, southeastern South Carolina uh, back a couple of years ago, and, and we um, G- put GPS collars on them, followed them around for uh, about three months out of the year during, during the breeding season. And uh, one of the unique parts about this particular property they were on uh, there were there were very few uh, what what I would consider real thick just classic uh, bedding areas, mm-hmm. and um, what what turned out to those very few bedding areas turned out to be quite important for those deer. Um, and almost half of the deer that we had collars on had their their core areas uh, overlapping some of those uh, those real thick uh, classic bedding area type situations. So. Um, and I made the I actually made the statement several times during during my presentation there. If you remember, Matt, that uh, in my my opinion, uh, in places like uh, Ohio and, and and on this particular property, I was doing my research where where food was was very um, 
pretty much unlimited, mm-hmm. uh, was, was not a limiting resource anyway. Sure. Um, uh, bedding cover is, is a number one uh, priority for anyone wanting to hold deer on their property. And um, as far as size and number, uh, you know, I, I don't have any quantitative. Highly variable. Yeah, I Absolutely. mean, it, it certainly can, it, you know, what are your neighbors doing? Uh, if, you, if your neighbors don't have a whole lot of cover, man, you know, put put just a little bit on your property, and man, you, 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 you can see you, a great change you drastically. See, you can see a huge, huge improvement. Um, yeah, so it, it's certainly good. And that's maybe getting off topic, but one of the things that I, I tend to fall back on is l- – when, when someone asks me about habitat management on their property and, and, and they see all the stuff out there about, you know, all the food plot stuff and all, you know, creating habit, bedding habitat and, and all these certain things, I always kind of fall back to open your eyes a little bit wider mm-hmm. and always kind of scope out what's going on around you. You know, yep. those, those, those things can, can, can certainly narrow your focus. From a consulting standpoint, typically we're going in and recommending, say, a bedding area thicket or close to a clear cut and open up a lot of canopy to sunlight. Generally speaking, most areas are roughly one to three acres in size for, for a given bedding area thicket uh, throughout properties. And number of them obviously dependent upon the size of the property Um, you want to be able to move throughout your property you want deer during daylight hours to be bedded in there so you want to be able to navigate your property and access your property without alerting those deer so depending on the topography you might be able to add more you might be able to add more cover to a farm if you can access it appropriately if it's flat ground like you're seeing there in south carolina you might be a little bit more limited because you're on the same level same plane consistently as deer so Number is highly variable, um, but general size, what we're recommending is roughly one to three acres um, for implementing those. Um, what is the best buck-to-doe ratio? Best buck-to-doe ratio, I suppose. Mm. Through your curveball, zinger. <laughs> well... <laughs> What's a natural buck to do uh, ratio? There's there's a great question. Rewording yeah, I, I, exactly. Well, you know, I, I guess since we know that bucks and does are generally born in about equal numbers, mm-hmm. um, uh, buck and bucks a little bit heavier than than does, and, and perhaps survival rates balance that. Uh, things get out of whack, of course, very quickly because we put a lot more pressure on our bucks than we do our our does and have historically. Um, sure. but, I, but I think, and Clint, you can jump in anytime. Um, but I think the, the reality is, um, I think I, I, I can, I can hear Matt and I can he- probably hear uh, Kip saying it more often, you know, putting the right number of deer on the land is, is really what matters most. But sex ratio, of course, what matters is you get, you get deer bred and that you don't have late born fawns. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we're probably well within that range. Uh, you know, Brad spoke earlier today during the during the uh, the presentation uh, about seeing a, a few more late-born fawns, um, and, and that that may be a sign of, of course, sex ratio getting a little bit out of mm-hmm. whack. Um, but I think historically, um, and again, this this comes back to a conversation, unfortunately, for our listeners um, that weren't part of the earlier presentation, talking about um, what our buck harvest data mean these days because buck harvest uh particularly our yearling buck uh information is used in in calculation in, in calculation of uh calculating i should say um our um sex ratio sex ratio so mm-hmm. that uh that may be part of the problem it may be misleading us a bit but uh, you know a balanced sex ratio is 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 
highly difficult to achieve, and I, I don't know, Clint, maybe you can chip in here a little bit, but I don't know that, it, that it's necessary either. Um, I think somewhere where we're at now, we have historically been in that, you know, an adult buck for every 1.75, whatever that might look like, does. Mm-hmm. So one, one to two, we've been, you know, again. Historically historically in that range. Historically in that range. So I don't know that um, – I'll quit rambling, Clint. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have much else to add. I mean, I think the best buck to doe ratio is, is is certainly, in my opinion, one that's more natural. Sure, um, it, Which, which, given a little bit higher mortality rate among bucks, even natural mortality rate absence mm-hmm. of hunting, uh, your your natural adult sex ratio is going to be a little bit skewed towards towards does. But um, you know, in that one to one and a half uh, bucks per does is 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 Optimal. A, a natural, right? And 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 in my opinion, would be optimal, certainly. But it, you know, if if you get in those situations where you have you know several bucks per doe, which I've seen those in in you know like obviously in captive situations, mm-hmm. uh, highly uh, unlikely to happen in free range situations. But sure, yeah, you can see some <laughs> outrageously uh, interesting deer uh, interactions when you when certainly. you have that much competition certainly in the during rut, the rut yeah right. so it, obviously that's just kind of a sidebar that's not going to happen in real life but you know, right back to the question um natural sex ratio in my opinion is the best certainly and i, I you know i'm just i'm just hedging my bets here but i'm wondering if perhaps because clint kind of hinted at this and it triggered uh, a neuron in my brain to to maybe um speak to uh this this notion that you know, we need to be clear that we're talking about adult sex ratio, antler, adult males and adult females, not antlers, antlerless to antler. I think sometimes I think that's where folks get a little mm-hmm. bit sideways, um, wondering that, that things are out of whack. You know, you drive down the country road in the fall, uh, late summer, let's say, and you see, you know, you see uh, two bucks and, and, and seven or eight antlerless deer. Well, you know, in their mind, we got a very skewed sex ratio. Mm-hmm. But in reality, if you, th- if you start thinking about numbers, you know, two out of ten deer in the fall should be antlered bucks. And so we're probably... Not too far off with that. So I think that's, I don't know if that's where that question came from, but right. I think oftentimes over my career, and I'm, I yeah. know Clint probably heard, has heard the same thing, that we need to be clear we're talking about antlered adult bucks to adult does, not antlerless deer to antlered bucks. Certainly. Totally certainly. different story. Yeah, because when you Completely throw fawn, when you throw fawns in the mix, right. you know, it certainly. It's and going, going down the road 70 miles an hour, <laughs> it's proud spots. You're like, ah, that's deer. Yeah. Exactly. Um, do you guys have any tips? And this kind of goes outside of, you know, necessarily Ohio, baby, but tips for people to try and get on private lands, hunting and building a relationship with a private landowner to gain access for hunting. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> okay, so, so I'm going to throw this out there for what it's worth. Um, I think in my heart of hearts, I believe there are places in Ohio um, that, that people – uh, with the right demeanor, the right approach, the right attitude, um, can still find places to hunt without a checkbook in their pocket. Um, and and I think let's let's face it, um, presentation, timing, um, uh, willingness to offer up, you know, help with chores, cut firewood, haul hay, whatever the case may be, um, you know, uh, kind of good old fashioned uh, help around the farm, so to speak. Uh, Matt, I think is is still still goes a long way now. Yeah, Realistically. Those days are 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 slowly, uh, unfortunately, coming to a close. I know it's harder and harder for people to find places to hunt. Um, but having said that, I, I want to throw this out. Um, we talk about we talked about uh, again during the presentations today. We talked about uh, changes to public land regulations, mm-hmm. um, largely because of 
what are perceived as, as overcrowded hunting conditions and, and, and poor opportunity to harvest and see deer on those, on those lands. But I, 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 I've got to say that I don't believe that applies to every single piece of public land that we have in the state. So, you know, I would encourage folks, um, and I, I, can, I was witness to this when I worked at, at uh, my office was situated on a wildlife area. Uh, oftentimes we saw pressure ebb and flow as, as pressure built more and more people would, would come to the wildlife area, word would get out, it's a great place to hunt, and all of a sudden pressure would drop off because people sure. got tired of the pressure. So I think uh-huh. it's on maybe on the Division of Wildlife to do a little better job maybe allocating that pressure because I'd say at the end of the day, across the board, across the entire state, across the quarter of a million acres of public land that we own in the state, I'd say we're probably a lot of days underutilizing that public land. So wow. private land may be tough to get, maybe tough to get a hold of, especially uh-huh. in some of those high-profile counties. Um, but so I would I would say hey let's let's focus maybe during the middle of the week um, maybe sure. some of those off peak days uh, look at some of our public lands because I'm sitting right to my left is a guy that's done really really well on an unnamed piece of public land in the state. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk after show. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 the point is is that 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 number one I think I think there still are opportunities on private land in Ohio with mm-hmm. with the right approach. And number Certainly. two I think if if you fail. Um, don't give up. I think our, our public lands offer lots and lots of great opportunities. Maybe on, maybe not on opening day gun season or the peak of the rut, you may find it a, a little bit crowded. But if you can avoid those days, um, mm-hmm. I think great you have an opportunity. Clint, yeah. anything to add to that? I don't really. I think you hit 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 that one pretty well. Thanks. He's like, don't throw that question to me. I don't want to give away any of my secret spots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one last question here. Um, and we're talking deer stress in the late winter period, March time frame. Um, I guess, and, and deer holding antlers, how does that affect antler growth in May time frame? We're talking about stress during the winter period. I mentioned it earlier in a presentation. You guys weren't here for that. Um, but just, you know, if body condition, if they can get through winter healthier, they're going to start allocating more resources to antler development quicker instead of rebuilding their body. So mm-hmm. you guys take that and kind of run with it on your perspective of managing deer. I'm going to let Clint tackle this one because, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if anybody noticed, but I, I left out my background, right? Uh, Clint talked heavily about his nine years of experience working with deer and research on deer and good for him. But um, my, my background um, is really in, in non-game birds and quail. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine that. Fantastic. Lost a lot of credibility, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the fact of the matter is I remember vividly in an interview in, um, in Massachusetts, um, uh, the guy said, if, we, if you can get a Ph.D., we figure we can teach you a few things about deer. But <laughs> I'm going to pass to Clint because I think, I, I think you know, the more the, the biology questions, I'm, I'm happy to tackle that. But I think Clint's, Clint's going to help us out a little bit yeah, more on that. But, one. you know, I, I'd be happy to talk, uh, you know, at length about it. But I think, Matt, you hit it. You pretty well hit it out of the park. I mean, it, the, the, the sooner that deer builds back his resources, the more mm-hmm. resources he has available – um, and the sooner he reaches that kind of filled out the body. That kind of threshold yep. again, back to health. Exactly. Um, and then starts allocating. If he can if he can start, once he sheds his antlers, um, you know, antler growth essentially begins immediately. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it heals over. Right. Within, That's a part of the process. Yeah, exactly. So it sheds. It's an open wound, essentially, and then it heals over. And more or less, once that scab falls off of that, of, of that pedicle, um, you know, you're going to restart the growth process again. And it only makes sense that um, the better in tune your body is at that point to start growing antlers, mm-hmm. the more the more you can allocate to growing those antlers. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have a whole lot more to add to, than to what you said. It sounds all complex, but it's just that simple. Uh, yeah. Which is I, good, I, thing, right? <laughs> right. But basically, this kind of highlights the importance, though, of uh, either 
food plotting appropriately and having the right forages in your acres, your food plot acres, and managing the native browse to offer sufficient amount of food and carrying capacity for this deer on your property. Yeah, and and, and maybe we to expand on that a little mm-hmm. bit, maybe we can talk a little bit more about uh, habitat and landscape. Definitely. Um, and you mentioned food plots, which are great. That's great um, and good deal, but in, the in, bulk. Yeah, in, in western Ohio specifically um, where – you know, I'll talk to someone and say, oh, there's there's plenty of room out here for more deer. Well, uh, in the summertime, oh, yeah, there's there's lots of room for lots of deer. Mm-hmm. But come winter, when crops come off, and, of course, you know, farming equipment's much more efficient than it used to be, not as much waste grain. Once those crops come off the fields, where do those deer have to go? They have mm-hmm. to go to those, you know, most in, in very, you know, very heavily farmed western Ohio, they're going to those small isolated woodlots and um unfortunately you pack a lot of deer in a small woodlot they're going to lose lose out on on good stuff to eat pretty quickly quickly. over winter so um that's one of the reasons why we have to keep the population checked back a little bit in western ohio and one of the reasons why the population isn't isn't so apt to jump up uh, ahead of us either because because of those limited resources um however you know they're in good shape because mm-hmm. of you know they got because you're managing at the appropriate level. Yeah, that and you know and they've got those mm-hmm. and they've got those uh, basically unlimited uh, high high quality food resources throughout a good portion of the year. Certainly, yeah. certainly. Well, guys, I appreciate your time and joining us on the podcast and you guys presenting today and kind of representing the state of Ohio. The deer program, obviously, it's no um, shock. Ohio is a top producer in whitetail deer every single year. You guys are doing something right. Matt, glad to be here. Thanks a lot, Matt. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that was a pretty good little conversation with some deer hunters in Ohio. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing from hearing it. You know, I'm you. You handled the flight out there, and you went out and spoke. uh, And you know, it's been such a busy schedule, busy spring for us. I'm sitting back going. I can't even remember what I was doing. Oh, I, I do know what I was doing. I was at home working on reports still uh, from some of our past consultations and trying to catch up still. Um, well, and I'm actually on the road now I was to say, Georgia. As I got back, <laughs> you you left, and you're headed southeast. You're going to Georgia for a couple of days, and about the time that you get back from Georgia this week, I'll be going to Kansas and head the opposite direction. So, We'll see you in a month, Adam. I guess opening yeah, day of turkey yeah, season. Like we'll see at some you. point, I'm going to be standing there by my truck in the morning at the gate going, okay, well, I haven't seen that in a while. You <laughs> yeah. get out long-haired with a beard. Oh, yeah. like, old old. <laughs> yeah. I'll just come running down the gravel road. <laughs> <Yeah>. Shotgun <laughs> strapped on the shoulder. I just felt like running. Running. Yeah. I did hear yeah, birds gobbling in Ohio, though, that the, the – Brad Turner stayed at his house, and he's the president of the Twin Creeks QMA branch who put it on. And so um, his back porch looks over his property, and sure enough, he's like, yeah, you'll hear birds in the morning. I was like, what time's it getting light? He's like, oh, 7.15. I was like, oh, shoot, I'll be up. I'm going to go on the back porch. He had coffee, and we listened um, to birds gobbling on the back porch. I was like, oh, it was Isn't beautiful. that the dream, to live on your farm? <laughs> Man, well, it's funny, too, because the night before – Right when we got there, it was getting close to dark. Birds were already on the roost. He's like, "I want to, I want to cruise you around the property real quick." So we took a quick lap, and uh, we were going to go basically to kind of a, a bluff situation. I was, 
He's like, yeah, birds sometimes roost in here. I was like, well, and I started looking, and it's facing west. And then here's silhouettes of like four or five long beards um, on the limb. It's like, yeah, we might want to back out of here. And sure enough, that's exactly yeah. where they're gobbling the next morning. So, uh, oh, it got the blood flowing awesome. though. I'm sure you'll hear some birds down in Joa. Yeah, I hope. I hope. Yeah, I should for sure. I think Georgia season's already opened up. Yeah. Uh, very tempting not to just say, hey, why don't we just. Do this in camo shotguns, but, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, we didn't. We're not doing that. But uh, no, it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's the first time I've been consulting in Georgia in a few years, so mm-hmm. uh, really looking forward to it. You know, I did South Carolina a couple months ago, yep. or a month and a half ago, and uh, Alabama, did, and then I did Alabama. So I've kind of been hitting that southeast pretty hard. It seems like yeah. So you're you're a, a road warrior for. Birmingham, I'm sure you've been through there a bunch here recently. Yeah, dude, I'm so sick. <laughs> I, I'm, I have to apologize to all those people that live in this area that I'm getting ready to mention, but I do not enjoy the drive through northeast Arkansas, down through, like, Jonesboro. Yeah, and that, that's a uh, lonely little stretch there. Never yes. been a huge fan. And since I built this new interstate, northern, uh, like, northern Alabama, yep. I actually enjoy this. I enjoy this stretch anymore but Mm -hmm. you know it's it's we've been going on the road so much um this spring and of course we were busy last spring but we've hit some other areas that we didn't cover last year yeah and there's kind of a you know if, if people have watched our facebook page our social media pages they've seen more interaction more videos coming and at the same time um you'll probably notice more of a trend towards overall land management rather than deer hunting specific tactics or habitat enhancements for Mm -hmm, deer. mm -hmm. Um, And that's all by design, but there's kind of a growing trend, if you will, for our page. And a lot of that goes with overall land improvement to where we like to focus on managing for the whole ecosystem to where all native species benefit. And that goes with, if you're in the Northeast or you're in the East Coast, the, the stuff we, we do there, we want to make sure it's good for the grouse or the quail if you're in, in, in the Midwest. Um, and, and then it's good for the soil. It's good for the pollinators. It's good. And then it's good for the deer as well. You know, and, yeah, uh, totally. There's kind of been this, I don't know what year it started, but I know 2019 it needs to end. And that's the focus of deer only. And, you know, last week I spoke on, I hate the phrase, I don't, I, I just care about the deer. Um, that's kind of more of a subject of, of you know, uh, the deer is the easy one. It's the one that you can scratch up the dirt, plant a food plot and see deer. But it takes some serious management to, to enhance the property for bobwhite quail or rough grass or golden wing um, warbler i spoke on that in ohio this weekend you know just saying hey listen what you have in in programs cost share programs what you see out there is hey a lot of the same things that they're talking about for golden wing warbler is young forest early successional habitat in like surrounding mature forests that's the same thing with the rough grass well golly that's the same thing as a bedding area for deer like why don't we just change our mindset a little bit open our eyes to what truthfully land management is and we can know even though deer may be the main focus and there's nothing wrong with that 
but we we also need to know and be uh, you know open-minded to improving you know habitat for other species too that's right and so i i i push myself to read 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 more um in the last few years last year i read several books and this year i've read several books but uh are working on reading several books and one of the big things i did this year that i haven't done uh and I say this a little bit embarrassed, but I hadn't read San Canny Almanac in, in several years. And mm-hmm. so I went back through and read it. And, and you know, uh, in college, conservation was defined as the wise use of natural resources. That's it. But I actually believe, I, I like Aldo Leopold's uh, definition of that saying that conservation is the harmony between man and land. Yep. And there is a harmony that what we do is trying to get basically the gears and the and everything back in line to where the land works in a cycle and helps it is improved because we got it back in balance it's not we're stepping in and trying to play the right hand of god and say i get to remove these because that's what i'm going to do and and i say that in the sense of predators saying i'm going to remove more predators because i want to be the one who gets to harvest those mm-hmm. deer that's not how it is that's not and, truthfully uh, conservation it, that that's no. going away from harmony and going into uh, if you will selfish greed of of resource basically and, and yeah. I, you, it's almost like you're not valuing the resource itself um, if, if that's like the only focus is and, to harvest that <coughs> giant. And I say that because, promote. you know, one of the one of the trends that it, you, you could get on social media and you could probably see this on in a lot of instances of uh, a landowner has struggle. He has a problem of growing food plots or he has a problem of um not seeing the results he wanted and just having too many mouths to feed with, with a overpopulation of, of white tailed deer. And we've seen that on, on several occasions, but as of the last month, seen it on a couple of really nice properties mm-hmm. to a point where they have incredible potential, huge potential. And if, if you were to remove the crops from those areas, from those farms, we're talking, there would be a pretty hard winter kill, I would imagine, because very, the very crops difficult. is really what's carrying those deer. Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't want to manage our land where they have to depend on artificial supplements as far as stuff that's not native to that area. I don't want them to depend on crops and, and truthfully, to, to get through the winter. Farmers don't want that either. No, that, that's not working and utilizing every acre to its best. Like we we understand that we have to grow food for ourselves. And that puts pressure on a farmer enough. You know, we don't need the the other resources there on, on a property, as in, let's just say deer, for example, um, impacting that to a to an extent where, you know, it's becoming, or it's impacting the yield and the overall um, crop on the farm itself. We need to balance that back out and get, like you said, getting that um, har- harmonious, you know, equation between man and the resources and the land. That's right. And so let's use the Northeast, for example. So many deer that they have trouble with forest regeneration because what few trees do get cut and they're trying to let them grow back in young forest, 
they only grow back for a few years before before they're overbrown. Mm-hmm. And it that that's a huge problem. I wouldn't, you know, it's it's so bad up there. It's not even years. It's as soon as that that sprout comes out year one. I mean, like there's very little, even just like you know the two oak leaves that come out, you know, in the spring. There's not even that. Yeah. Like it's yeah. so poor um, of a regeneration. And then you go into up there as well, the lack of, you know, fire and other disturbances on the, the landscape. And now you have incredible, I mean, very alarming number of ticks and tick-borne illnesses in the Northeast. Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, you know, Massachusetts, I, Rhode Island, all that's just infested. Somebody shared a picture, I think it was Kip Adams with QDMA, uh, on his Instagram page about the Lyme's disease um, number of cases confirmed cases mm-hmm. in the united states yeah. and i don't remember if i sent it to you but i i always have conversations as well with tyler ross who's been on the podcast quite a bit and uh, i sent him that and then i sent him the uh the picture of united states forested areas mm-hmm. and it's almost identical weird correlation uh, huh yeah it's like okay well obviously well, i know that forests especially closed canopy forests probably is the breeding grounds for higher tick populations, higher tick populations create more, more uh, chances of having tick borne illness. Well, and, 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 and then to match that is a, a deer population that is um, out of skew over carrying capacity mm-hmm. for those. So you have numerous, yeah. numerous uh, hosts, you know, per acre to carry that tick and support that tick population as well. It, it's, it's, the opposite of harmony again when we look at those that types of landscapes. But you, you mentioned, so, oh, go ahead. Going, going into that that overpopulation of deer and the effects of uh, of the the effects that that would have on the full potential being expressed by a, a, the other deer or the whole the whole herd the whole population in that area. Let's look at it from a landscape standpoint of saying okay deer are overpopulated therefore they're eating a lot of the hardwood regeneration what are the species that they're probably not eating eastern red cedar being one of them that comes to mind Um, bush honeysuckle people say that they browse on it but they come in usually when you start getting an increased population there's so much of it that it eventually just outcompetes the browse pressure to where it blows through and starts filling up the understory very large topic in Ohio this weekend was invasive species. Bush honeysuckle. Bush honeysuckle. On, people are talking about deer are, you know, we're consuming those species. And I was like, Ugh. pump the brake, stop it. If they're doing that, you will have a very large issue with the amount of forage that your acres are producing. That's very yes. poor quality. Very poor quality. Yes. They should not I, be consuming that. I hate the that. phrase when somebody says, like, uh, that bush honeysuckles that's what the deer they they want that because that's what the deer are betting and stop it there's there's less invasive species more beneficial native species that provide more habitat and more benefits to the entire landscape yes just um, just because the deer beds autumn in olive, it one of my least favorites of all time autumn olive is is right there and uh i mean dude i i'm driving down the road and of course, uh, this time of the year, we're on the road all the time. But drive down the road, just look at the median, and just mm-hmm. tell me what the dominant species are. And that, I'm in 
Mississippi, not too far from Alabama. Eastern Red Cedar uh, is one of the biggest ones in this part of the world um, uh, in the median. Um, Sweet Gum being another huge one. Mm-hmm. And then you go up into other a couple places up around in Arkansas, and it was Autumn Olive and, and Kudzu. And then you go a little further south in Arkansas, and it's Privet. And it's like, I, I there is a this is what kind of made me think again about land use and going back to some of our real estate is do we actually own the land? Um, if, if, uh, if I go out to my farm and I start dumping buckets of crude oil out, the government's going to come and take that farm from me because I'm causing environmental hazards to my neighbors and, and everyone who joins me and then downstream of me. Don't be that guy. Who's the, where's the argument to be made for the guy who's planting Bradford pears or autumn olives to where he's causing environmental issues for me mm-hmm. in my neighborhood if he's planting those because I'm losing my my beneficial native landscape. That's very and true. I, I'm just like, you know, at, at what point, where's the line? I mean, if we want to start down that slope, let's go down that slope. The, the only difficult part that comes to it is, you know, how do you, how do you determine if it was planted or, or if it just not, if, you know, it just <laughs> was carried or, you know, this or that, like it's very difficult to prove, but I'm right there with you from the fact that we're not taking it serious enough, I guess, from a uh, value of the landscape um, just because it's a woody bush or a structure that would potentially offer from a structure, simply structure standpoint, no forest value, somewhat cover doesn't mean that should be there. It doesn't mean that needs to be there and it needs to be eradicated because again, it's, I, I don't want to get like, you know, people like, Oh gosh, I always say, well, it's not native. Well, that has super huge and important value to the function of how everything else in the population and, and, and the ecosystem works. Like you have to have That's a right. base of native species for everything else to to really truthfully work. I think, um, I think this was John Wingo said uh, with Pure Air Natives that Bradford pears. There's three pollinators, native pollinators that will actually pollinate a Bradford pear, but there's over 300 that will pollinate oak species. That's right. I, there's that a perfect example. My next point is there's been there's other research papers that I've seen where. Most native species won't pollinate bush honeysuckle, uh, and 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 that goes with a lot of our other non-native species. And so it's like if that takes over the understory, if that takes over a field, you're now removing the benefits to the pollinators. Which is, if you want to make an argument on what's more beneficial to the landscape, white-tailed deer or pollinators, you would be foolish to probably say that you care more about the white-tailed deer because there's more value in pollination from the whole ecosystem, the whole food uh, food web with the pollination. It's, Poll- it's pollination a, it's makes deer food. Web, that's right. It's a web, and and there's different levels. And there's levels in the soil. There's levels in the plants in the in the soil. There's levels with the plants above the soil, and then you take that right into insects to small game to bigger game to apex predators. And if there's not the small ones. There's not going to be the big ones. The only way that we're going to move forward and 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 honestly conserve and improve and enhance more acres is taking a step back from the direction we're headed 
and learn, educate ourselves on the resource we're trying to manage, and then hit the gas pedal. That's right. It, it, it goes with that comment that we made last week. A cattle farmer is not really a grass farmer. He's more a soil farmer. A crop farmer is not really a crop farmer. He's a soil farmer. And a deer, a deer farmer, a deer manager is not really a deer manager. He should be a habitat manager. Mm-hmm. And take that even one step further, he should be a soil manager. Healthy soil creates healthy plants, creates healthy animals. And uh, we've missed the boat um, at some point in the 90s, early 2000s. We took a turn, right-hand turn, but we can always make a U-turn and get back on the right highway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and We certainly can. We certainly should. Um do that very soon. Because I think it's, <laughs> it's just a matter of time before uh, our GPS is telling us, and we're going to recreate a scene from the office, but our GPS is saying, go right. And we're like, yes, plant pompous grass for a screen. Yes, plant giant miscanthus or uh, miscanthus gigantus for, for a screen. Yes, I need more autumn olive. Yes, I need eastern red cedar. Take a right-hand turn, and boosh, we splash into a lake, and the road ends. If my GPS ever says something like that, I will yank it off the dash (laughs) of the car and go to the nearest bridge and chuck it off. Yeah, Yeah. and so there's definitely a a time, a a need to get back to more native habitat restoration. And uh, because we're never going to get there managing for one species. And, and, And out, and putting on the blinders and saying, I don't care what this does to the land. I know this is beneficial to the deer. Uh, so mean, getting back to that, the, the problems that we've seen, some of the biggest ones and some of the most overlooked ones uh, are herd management. Big time. How many times do we see, you know, we love deer. You and I love deer. But oh, I, I love don't them. love deer any more than I love a monarch butterfly or a, a blazing star. I don't, I, I love the whole landscape. I love the whole system. And um, I think that it's, it sometimes gets blurry when we say I'm a, I love seeing deer to a point where we don't manage the deer herd enough to a point where we're now harming the deer. And because we're time. harming the deer from an overpopulation, we're harming the landscape. And the long-term landscape, going back to that grazing, uh, over-browsing some of our native, let's just say, oak regeneration, to a point where we're just opening it up and, and letting the, the non-natives or the, the invasives or the species we may not want. They might even be native, but we're, we're, changing, the cha- we're changing the direction of the forest because we're not doing our job as a game manager. It- it can be simply boiled down to more deer does not equal quality deer. Just because no. you have more deer on the landscape doesn't mean that you have more opportunities for larger deer to get out there. If there are more deer on the landscape and not enough forage out there to support the larger numbers, you will have a stressed population, and stressed populations will not produce larger antlers it's that simple it's it, i mean it, it's it's so, nothing that has to be any more complicated than that get back to a carrying capacity which your land can handle that you can support and manage for equal adult sex ratios and then from there you will have a balanced population that will be able to produce 
and reach its actual genetic potential, which is what we all want. If you do that, you will have incredible deer, bar yeah. none. Here's a question for you. You don't have to answer it, but this is something I want our podcast listeners to think about. What's more harmful, a man who doesn't manage the land or a man who manages the land in the wrong type of management? And by that, I mean a person who owns land who doesn't do anything versus a person who owns land but lets the, the herd get extremely out of balance, planting non-natives because you believe that's, that's I'll say non-native invasives especially, because you believe that's beneficial to your deer, which one's worse? Here's a I biological principle. When things so are, I, here's a biological principle from an ecology standpoint. So basically population standpoint. When things are out of whack, things get reset. And do you want to be the, the, the ability, the person to reset things? We're talking about populations. Do you want to be the person when you come into a new property and say, gosh, I got way too many deer. Do you want to be the one selecting that by harvesting and making those choices? Or do you want nature to take that course where it don't care what it's taking? It's just looking at sheer numbers and balancing it, it back out. It doesn't care if it's a 200 inch buck. <laughs> don't care one or bit. Or a 150, three and a half year old or a doe. Nope. It's just. It's, it's the wrath of God coming down and, and equalizing what's happened. So, um, again, it, it, but I, it just goes back to if you want healthier, if you're managing for trophy deer, it's not a numbers game from the more deer on the landscape equals bigger antlers. It's just balancing it back out and getting, allowing those individuals that are on the landscape to reach that genetic potential. And if they can yeah. do that, you will probably, in most situations, in, in areas that have high deer densities, be blown away at what actually that potential of the landscape is. It's just like going into a forest and, and doing TSI, if you will, the number of uh, stems per acre. You Everyone see the growth rings on trees. When you remove the competition those trees explode. Those trees didn't change. They, the genetic potential of those trees didn't change. They were just given a better uh, environment to grow in, and then they exploded. They actually have the ability to grow, and let's say put on inches. We're talking about deer now. They have the ability to do that. The same genetics were there. It's just a different environment for it to grow and prosper in instead of grow and be stressed in. That's right. I, I feel like in, in the amount of change we've witnessed in the, in the landscape or on the landscape as far as people getting more involved in, in land management, uh, moving to the farm and, and doing these things, there's a, there's a history book being written right now. And we get to decide, are we going to be on the side of history, especially when it comes to land? the side of conservation, true habitat management, true leaving it better than we found it, or are we going to be on the side of saying, I chose to just look at the immediate returns that my deer that I'm hunting benefited from? Which side do you, do you want to be on? And I, and I hope that more people, when they look at the true meaning of what we're doing on the landscape, they'll say, yeah, 
I probably do. I probably do want to make the more long-term benefit than than the short-term game of planting this potentially invasive species. In, in a culture and society that loves immediate return on things, I I hope um, that we, as hopefully we are hoping to educate some people, will will change that. And it, you and I, Adam, we're not going to do it just by going and traveling to um, clients' properties. That, that's not enough. It's, no. it's the people who hopefully are listening to this then adopt that same, same mindset and share it with their neighbors and share it with their friends and make that impact locally in their region too. That's what's going to do it. I agree. I, I just, uh, you know, there's just a lot of, we need to wake up. We need to take a glass of water and splash it on our face and say, okay, Enough's enough. You know, going back to that immediate gains, there are things in true habitat management that are immediate results. I mean, uh, I've been on some property this year in the southeast, actually, where it was basically closed canopy forest. There was no young forest. There was no early succession. There was no regeneration um, of the hardwoods. And it was just leaves and sticks laying on the ground underneath Mm-mm-mm. mediocre timber so they went in uh, and did these bedding thickets wildlife openings to try and enhance that and get more young forests coming up in the future and uh i had him put up a trail camera as soon as they cut the first one and i think he's what he said was there was a buck that showed up on on that bedding thicket that had not been uh he hadn't had his picture taken anywhere on that side of the farm. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, what, what's that look like? Like when you're going back in there, is it a lot of browse? He says, Oh yeah, there's tons of browse. And it's what we saw on a, on a property mm-hmm. that we cut, we cut in January and went back in, in early March or mid March just last week. And you couldn't find a bud that was within reach of a deer that hadn't been eaten. And, and that couldn't, was not You couldn't take a step and not step on a pile of deer scat. And yeah, that's yeah. honestly, that's not an exaggeration. There's just that mean during the landscape there, but it was necessary you know what to put reminded those in. Me of, of all that scat on the ground reminds me of like those old abandoned houses you might find on a landscape. You step in <laughs> there and there's just rat and, and mice poop everywhere. And you're like, Gross. oh my gosh, that's yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. And, and it's it, just another reminder of the importance of that late winter, early spring stress period that sometimes we're locked away in the house nice and warm getting through the winter fighting cabin fever going i can't wait till deer season next year mm-hmm. but we're not even caring about them because we haven't put the resources in on the landscape to favor the wildlife yep and that, and a lot of that comes to uh if you're planting a food plot let's just go through a few things i know we're probably running low on time but yeah you're planting a food plot that's just brassicas um, there's some out there that are really popular. They look great. Yeah, they're awesome to hunt over, but they don't provide forage during this this stress big stress period. period because by this time they're already been eaten or they're they've dwindled away. The frost in the winter has just set in on them, and they're just nothing. So you have a barren food plot. That's the importance of adding wheat, adding these cereal grains, adding uh, cereal rye or annual clovers, triticale, annual annual clovers. Um, that just adding those to where you have something more browse tolerant, um, and that's going to make and, it through and, winter a lot better. Like the, those yeah. those plants are 
not suitable for for tough winters and you have to have a plant that will get through a tough winter because you don't know when that tough winter's coming you have to prepare no. for the worst on the land and that's where you know woody browse uh is 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 critically important you can do that throughout the entire year and prepare yourself for winter by having that available um doing prescribed fire and then planting your food plots accordingly with high diverse mixtures that offer forage and attraction to the same area from September when it germinates all the way until um, April when hopefully in your area everything else is beginning to green up. The winter is tough, but it's an unpredictable tough. You don't know how tough it's going to be. So if you want the most out of your land and the most out of the resources on the land, you better prepare for those tough conditions. Hope hope for the best, plan for the worst. That's right. That's right. That's that's the truth behind land management when when you want – and that's that's the other thing too. And, and don't get me wrong, we are deer hunters. We love to deer hunt. It's an incredible resource. We appreciate it. We love it, and we'll do our best to manage it manage it um, in a respectful manner that promotes um, that species. But truthfully, I don't think on the landscape looking across it, we are getting the caliber of deer off of it, even though we're making so many advances and a lot of um, deer are getting to older age classes because of regulations or self-imposed um, regulations people are putting on themselves trying to get and shoot deer of older age class. That The age structure has changed. However, what happens now that the age structure has changed drastically from 1995 to now, what happens when we have really good habitat Oh my gosh, there's going to be some incredible deer killed on the landscape. So if that doesn't get you excited and push you to do more um, habitat management, I don't know what will. But what happens oof. what happens to southern Iowa when somebody gets in there and improves the habitat and actually makes it beneficial? What happens in western Illinois when somebody gets in there and removes the bush honeysuckle, gets some young forest, gets some uh, natives um, some early successional old fields. What happens to that area of Pike County, Adams County, Fulton County? What happens with somebody in the Ozarks who starts cutting trees and thinning timber and making the timber more productive at the same time improving habitat? That one I do know. A guy gets starts getting called a big buck killer because he's the only guy doing it in the area, and everybody looks at him and goes, I don't know what that guy's doing, but he always kills a good one. Yep. And that man that comes to mind is Seth Harker. Mm-hmm. I mean, he killed a deer that was 183 with about 15 inches broken off about five years ago and kills a, a good one every single year. Multiple But he's ones. now on the on the other side of the spectrum where he's got too many deer. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> some of the, so to take all this passionate rambles that we just did for the last 30 minutes, take it all down to just the nutshell, and we're going to tell you, some of the biggest things we've noticed this year and in past years is the lack of invasive species management. And because of that, the habitat goes really poor. And at the same time, a lack of management of the deer herd by re- making sure you're on top of the, the management and, and removing the amount of mouths that are on the, that are coming to the table. Yep. And at the same time, I'll say that, some of those at some point and some of those farms there's been a focus on predator management which is just a complete backwards train of thought of if you're if you're complaining about too many deer 
why in the heck would you ever complain about having too many predators? Yep. Because that they're only trying to do what you're trying to do too. It just goes back to the, the, the principle, the biological principle of ecology. There's are ebbs and flows, peaks and troughs in populations. And if you aren't managing it, nature will manage it for you. And then the Predators fourth one being away. the lack of young forest mm-hmm. and early successional plants. Uh, I, I, you don't see much young forest on the landscape unless you're going to a place that has, I mean, you go to go, go down south in the pine plantations, even though they're cutting, they're, there's not stump sprouts with the pines. They may replant them, but they're not eating young pines. Well, and the broadleafs are are sprayed out to promote monoculture to pine plantations. Exactly. And so that's not – when we say young forest, we're talking about hardwood young forest. So if you have those pockets, try to get some young forest growing back. Yeah. And, it, and, and, and if you want the immediate results, do it in half-acre patterns where, or a half-acre to an acre pattern scattered it across the landscape. And that's, that's something you'll see immediate results with. Um, not only from deer activity coming into this winter, but at the same time, they'll start using them a lot more next next fall during hunting season. Yep. This this so. podcast is a, is a is a one um, that hopefully there's passion coming through the sound waves at you guys that you guys can too um, take that enthusiasm and and go run with it. Um, hopefully, it, it makes sense for you guys. It's it's boiled down into um, things that we're seeing and things that maybe you guys are, are, are now becoming, I guess, I don't want to say enlightened, but just more observing the same things um, in your given area um, and can teach those people and, and share the information that, that we're sharing. Because, again, it's, it's us who's going to make a change. Um, we're That's the right. ones who are going to um, take, take on this role gladly and and improve the landscape and then and tell others about why we're doing it that's right so well man well i'm you, you got i'm to, signing off man i'm yep. in hamilton mississippi i believe i don't think i made it to alabama yet okay well good deal well, safe the travels pines. yeah safe travels to you the rest of the way um yep. we will See be you uh, turkey season <laughs> yeah that by the way it's coming very quickly it I mean, is. It's, uh, we've got one week left of March. Vest. It's like, hoo, oh. hoo, hoo. Yeah, I looked at my turkey vest sitting in the office, and uh, I'm like, I haven't even put any calls in that. Oh, I already did that. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I would encourage everybody to check out the, the uh, subscribing on the YouTube channel, going over there and checking it out. Uh, we just released a film this week, oh, um, right, yeah. Pure Air Natives, um, kind of correlated with a podcast we did way back in January, I believe. I think it was January 8th. Um, and so um, go check out that film on YouTube or on our social media pages. But at the same time, get ready because as we, uh, we kind of move through in the spring, you're going to see a lot more videos coming, uh, especially during turkey season. And we've got several videos that we've just kind of filed uh, that I've just got to edit real quick and put them out there. So be ready for vlogs coming soon. Yes, guys. Appreciate you guys listening, tuning in, and being so um, doing so um, so regularly. Man, it's been incredible to see growth through the podcast and um, more people reaching out and asking questions and being excited about this talk. Um, so appreciate it. Uh, check us out on 
YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and um, landlexy.tv. Adam, got anything else? Nope, I'm out. Got any questions? Info at landlegacy.tv. Appreciate it, everyone. We will see you next week.